This is Justin Michael Williams, and welcome to the Kingdom Podcast. We believe there is something bigger than us, but also something big within us. We believe that all of us have the power to transform our lives and to transform the world. And we believe that wisdom is everywhere, but especially in you. This is our moment to ask life's biggest questions and to rise together. Welcome to the kingdom. I'm so excited to be with you all. We have an amazing session planned for you today with the incredible Marianne Williamson. And this season, we are having the kingdom all about the power of love. And love has been the primary focus of what our intention is for this entire season. And today is about love as a political force. And we have like I said, special guest, Marianne Williamson, coming to join us live here. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention to you all as we really go into this session together is when we think about love as a political force, people have been asking me, what do I mean by that? Why are we having this topic? I want you to put some ones in the chat box. If you were somebody who feels like there's so much going on in the world, and you want to be able to make a difference in the world, and you're just not sure exactly how to do that sometimes. Because this opportunity that we have here, as people who are spiritual, mindful, who care about the world, who take care of ourselves, who take care of our family and friends, and want to make this world a better place, this episode is going to show us how to do it with love, and not how to do it with fear or with hate or with all the rhetoric that we're seeing online and not even with the anxiety, but how to show up in a space of love. And Marianne is going to walk us through this today in an incredible way. And I'm so excited and so honored that uh, she is joining us here on this journey. And so one of the things that we do in every single session is open up our interviews and our sessions with a little prayer and a little bit of silence. So I am going to just set a timer for one minute. And I want you to place your hands over your heart and we'll just be silent for a moment, whether you're driving, whether you're listening to the podcast, watching the recording or here live, this is a moment for you to get centered and present. And today we're going to use this moment of silence, 60 seconds to drop into the feeling of gratitude, 60 seconds of gratitude. And maybe you think about something you have to be grateful for our 60 seconds of a little bit of silence. will start right now. God, Spirit, Universe, all that is, all that ever has been, and all that ever will be, we thank you. Thank you for bringing this community together. Thank you for bringing our special guest, Marianne Williamson, here to share with us how to bring love forward as a political force to make change in the world. Thank you for guiding us to this place, for this community that has come together for three years, and for the wisdom that we get to share out into the world, into the circles that only we can reach. May we be present and may each of us take exactly from this session, the exact message that we need as an antidote in our heart to be of greater service of love. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. We are of service to love, and we are grateful. So it is, Ashe, Aho, Salam, Amen, Shalom, Satnam, Awen, Om. Thank you. All right, everybody. It's about that time. And I have a quote that I'm going to open up this session with. That is a quote from Oprah. Y'all know I love me some Oprah. And it says, I believe that every single event in life happens as an opportunity to choose love over fear. And as we are looking at what's been happening in the world at this time, it's so freaking easy for us to be drowned in fear. And what we know to be true is that love is greater than fear, or it can be, especially when we choose to harness it as a force. And so I know that so many of us, when we think about love as a political force, you know, so many of us in our communities, our spiritual communities, the reason I really wanted to do this episode with Marianne is so many of us look at our personal growth and self-help as like a me-centered activity. But what we know is that we are connected and none of us can be well to the highest degree of wellness that we can be or actually express in the way that we really are meant to in the world without all of us having the opportunity to be well and thrive. And so I'm so excited for this session because we are going to really get into how to use love as a political force, which is a space that I know so many of us are sometimes afraid to get into. I know I used to be. And now I've learned that this space is a space that we can create massive change, thanks to our special guest, Marianne Williamson. And so I'm going to read Marianne's bio so you can hear, for those of you who don't know Marianne, how freaking amazing she is. And then I'll say a little something personal, but I typically don't read bios on here, but I thought, you know what? There's too much magic on here to skip. So I'm going to make sure you can hear how amazing this woman is and what she has done for the world. So Marianne Williamson is a political activist, author, non-denominational spiritual lecturer, and New York Times best-selling author. Her career began in the 1980s, during which time she became deeply involved with HIV and AIDS activism. She's a longtime champion for the LGBTQ plus community. She founded Project Angel Food to deliver meals to the homebound who were unable to shop or cook for themselves. And to date, that charitable organization has served over 16 million meals. Marianne Williamson has been a nonprofit activist throughout her entire career. She's written 15 books, seven New York Times bestsellers, and four of them hit number one. Now, one of the big reasons why I invited Marianne here today has to do with her work running for the Democratic nomination of the President of the United States. And for those of you who don't know, Marianne in 2020, I'm sure all of you know, ran for the Democratic nomination of the President of the United States and is now a candidate challenging the candidacies of President Biden and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and as an essential part of her platform, and this is what I love about Marianne's platform, she proposes a 21st century economic bill of rights, a department of peace. So we're not just waging war, we're also waging peace, reparations for slavery, a department of children and youth, and a just transition from a dirty to a clean economy. A progressive Democrat, Marianne proposes a new economic beginning, including universal health care tuition-free college and tech school, and a guaranteed living wage. Now, I want to tell you all, as I bring Marianne on, on stage, Marianne, I'm going to just bring you up here so I can just honor you as you, you know, come and share here with us today, that you are who inspired me <laughs> to actually say yes to get into the political sphere. I was one of these people who was love and light. We just need to focus on myself. I create my reality. I don't want to watch the news. I don't want to get involved in negativity. And when I heard you talk about politics, it showed me that the power of what we can do with our spiritual practices is so limited if we don't include it in the political space. So I just want to personally thank you and welcome you to the Kingdom community today. Well, thank you. Thank you very, very much. I'm honored to have played any part in your 
journey at all, as you were playing such a significant part in the journey of others. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to you for giving me this opportunity to be here with you today. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you for making the time to be here. So especially while you're out here running for president of the United States. <laughs> it's a big deal. And, you know, one of the things that I want to start with, Marianne, is we've talked about for this whole season, we've talked about love, right? But before we talk about love as a political force, I think we've spent so much time this season defining love. Can you help us actually define politics? And mm, I think we get wrong about this. <clears throat> you know, and the Course in Miracles says, it says love is beyond what can be taught. The Course does not aim to teach the meaning of love. That is beyond what can be taught. It aims to remove the obstacles to the awareness of love's presence. Uh, love itself is undefinable, I think. Words at best, but point to something. They symbolize something, but love itself is an experience and nothing that can truly adequately be quantified or described in words. Politics is very interesting in that the way it is perceived today is in many ways very different than what the root of the word means and what it should mean in our lives. The root of the word politics comes from politeia, and politeia means of the people. Mm-hmm. Now, when we think of politics today, because this is what it has become in our society, it's something removed. And it's not only something removed from a lot of our human experience in a way that is undemocratic, but it has been placed into the hands of a kind of political class. That is the opposite of what democratic politics should be. And I'm saying democratic like from a small d as in a democracy. Right. Politics is our collective behavior. So let's say you're standing on a street corner and there's a there's a car accident, right, that happens n- near you. You say to yourself, what should I do? What should I do? Do I do I call 911 immediately or do I run over to the car and see if I can help? What do I do? Right. But if two or three of us are standing on the corner and we see that, we would ask, what should we do? What should we do? One person might say, okay, I'm going to call the police. You run over there and see if you can help. Somebody else might say, okay, and I'll run into the house over there and see if anybody can come. Maybe there's a doctor. There are some times in life where the question isn't just what do I do, but what do we do? And in politics, you're talking about our shared money. That's what our tax dollars are. So not only in your own life do you say, how should I spend my money? And also you realize how you spend your money is an expression of your values. So politics is also where we say, okay, how do we spend our money? That's what the U.S. Treasury is. How do we spend our money? Do we do it just to help big corporations get richer or and and subsidize them? Or are we going to use that money to make sure no child in America goes hungry, that every child is educated? That, to me, is what politics is. And if you remove politics from that deep, gritty level of our actual human experience, then it becomes something that it should not be and that actually ends up uh, doing more harm than good to the average person living in a society. Yeah, I feel that, you know, and I think, you know, one of the one of the questions that I've, I've been so excited from when we first thought of this episode, you know, theme to ask you is, I feel like when a lot of people hear love as a political force, now understanding politics as of the people, right? People often think when they hear love and politics as weakness, kind of turning the other cheek. And what I hear from people all the time, all the time, is even and especially in activist communities, is, well, when people do these deplorable things, when other people are being so hateful, why should I be loving? How could I, how could I be loving when these people are acting this way? So what does it actually look like to fight back against these ideas that that are intolerable, that are intolerable in a loving way, you know? Okay. First of all, let's look at a little history here. I think knowing some history is really helpful here. Mahatma Gandhi articulated the principles of nonviolence, political nonviolence. He said there is an inner light within every man, woman, and child. And that this inner light can be harnessed for purposes that heal not only personal relationships, but economic, social, and political relationships as well. Right. With that philosophy, 
he waged, he led the Indian independence movement, which was able to bloodlessly remove the British Empire from India. Martin Luther King went to India. He studied the principles of nonviolence as articulated by Gandhi, and he brought them back to the United States for application to the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Segregation is def- was definitely hatred, bigotry, and racism harnessed for political purposes, right. institutionalized for the purposes of suppression of Black people in the American South. So, you might say, how does love override that? And yet the power of the civil rights movement was that it was based on the power of love. And Martin Luther King made teaching the principles of nonviolence absolutely core to the message of the civil rights movement. Now, you might say, what was the practical benefit of this? Right. The absolute nonviolent heroism of Dr. King and the civil rights movement ultimately touched the conscience of America. Right. If that had not occurred, the civil rights movement would not have been a success. The Civil Rights Act would not have been passed. The voting rights would not have been passed. The fact that people's conscience was touched, it was the superior quality. You know, you talk about spiritual issues, and one of the things that is um, core to spiritual principle is the value of a superior personality. They talk about that in the Eastern religions a lot. The, The issue of Dr. King was his superior personality. It was what he stood for. His refusal to hate those who hated him his refusal to go there, he used to say, God didn't tell me I have to like my enemies. He just said, I have to love them. And so what King said about Gandhi was that he was the first person in human history to take the love ethic of Jesus. Now, it's kind of ironic that King called it the love ethic of Jesus because Gandhi would have just called it the love ethic at the heart of all the great religions, but he was a Hindu, right? Um, The love ethic of Jesus, he said, and took it beyond personal interaction to turn it into a broad scale social force for good. Remember at the civil rights marches, they sang, we shall overcome. Jesus be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So you don't fight, you overcome. Jesus didn't say on the cross, be of good cheer. I have fixed everything. He didn't say, be of good cheer. I've fought off the bastards. He said, be of good cheer. I have overcome. I have risen. I have risen to a level where there is such a consciousness of light that darkness cannot be. There is such a consciousness of love that fear cannot reside. That's, that's the metaphysical issue here that love is to fear what light is to darkness. And when there's a light, there simply cannot be darkness. And when there is enough love, when there's a critical mass of people who are doing, it's where you're coming from. Are you coming from just to fight corporatism and corporate tyranny and the old way of doing things and the economic injustice? No, no, no. You are standing in love and honor of your ancestors. You're standing in love and devotion and honor of your descendants. You're standing in love for the possibilities of a society where there genuinely is the the freedom to self-actualize. You love the possibility that you are claiming. Let me tell you something, Justin. I know it's hard. (laughs) You refuse to hate those who lie about you, who attack you, who do whatever to block this. And if we hold hands and we do this together, we will do in our time what Gandhi did, what King did. You know, if you look at the early abolitionist movement um, among white Americans, it emerged from early evangelical churches in New Hampshire. Right. Many of the women who were the leaders of the 
women's suffrage movement were religious Quakers. And Quakerism, by the way, had been very influential on the thinking of Gandhi because it's the idea of the equality of the light in every man, woman, and child. And of course, Dr. King was a Baptist preacher. So you cannot look at the trajectory of social justice movements in the United States and not recognize a deep spiritual element. This is aberrational. This is an aberrational chapter, this overly secularized notion of political change, because the history of the United States is not about an over-secularized trajectory of political change. It's about a deeply spiritually infused trajectory of spiritual change. And I'm so glad that you're saying that because you know, at the end of the day, what we're constantly talking about even here at the kingdom and everywhere is that you have to change people, right? People are who have to wake up. And we think of this concept of this kind of collective that is this kind of thing out there, but inside of a collective is people. And I think as you're talking about love and Dr. King getting into the hearts of the consciousness of people, it's how can we get in? Because if we don't get into the consciousness, then we just keep recreating the same stuff over and over again, right? We keep coming back to the same thing because we actually haven't shifted and transformed internally. Is that what you're saying? Well, there are two things involved here. On one hand, yes, people have to change. And this is one of the reasons why I have felt for years so strongly about people in the higher consciousness and spirituality movements being more involved in economic and political and social questions. Because I have felt that if you're the one who has if you have a clue as to what changes one life, right. you are the one who has a clue as to what would change the world because all that a, a country is is a collection of people. On that level, yes. But there's another level which challenges what you just said to take it to the next step. One of the things that I have seen, I saw it when I ran for president before and I see it now. And this is something very sobering for us to think about, but we must. My experience leads me to believe the people are not the problem. Right. The people are not the problem. You right. know, people say we just have to convince people. There is a critical mass of decent people in the United States. That's not the problem. And that was another thing. Dr. King had faith in people. And I think that's really important that we do that. He had faith in people. In fact, he used to say one of his lines was the American people are far more compassionate than the U.S. Congress. Right. So the problem is not just changing people. And that's what's difficult. Dr. King knew, no, we got to change the law. Well, you know, Marianne, I want to change the law. I want to say in here really quick, like, I'm so glad that you're saying this because in my experience, right, as a black queer man who's traveled all over this country, I'm biracial. I grew up in a family that's half white, who I have (laughs) in Alabama, who voted for Trump, you know, like all over. And I've I've traveled everywhere. And my experience, my actual experience, which I know is not the truth, but it's what my experience has been, is that most people are good. And most people love and want to do better and will show up for conversation, show up with an open heart. And that is as true in the United States as in any other country. We must have faith in one another. We've got to come out of our silos. We've got to check our own judgments, our own smug, arrogant belief that we know and they don't know. And that, that's just got to stop because that, that is an artificially created uh, dichotomy. Right. And it's keeping us from the kind of true, genuine spiritual solidarity that we need at this time. I agree with you in, entirely. And that's why we have to face the fact that the problem is not changing the minds of people. And I, I have to tell you something. I think the higher consciousness and spiritual community, yourself included, has a lot to uh, feel good about uh, a, a real uh, over the last few decades. This, I, these ideas have been mainstream, but now we need to face the resistance of what is essentially a political media industrial complex. So that's what you're identifying as the problem: the political media industrial complex versus the okay. people. Well, what? Well, the problem is corporate greed. The problem is institutionalized corporate greed. But the political media industrial complex at this point is part of the matrix of corporate power and enables that corporate greed. Oh, can and you in too many cases? Um, Do you break that down for people a little bit, Marianne? Because people who are not involved, not watching the news, I'm watching. How okay. does that 
work and matter. Okay, I'll be yeah. glad to do that. If yeah. I may, let's go back a little bit to the beginning because I think history really helps us here. Just like when you go to therapy and you know you look at your parents and you you learn where where you are in a much more powerful way when you understand what came before. Yeah. Okay, so in 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed. The Declaration of Independence is not just a profound political document. It's a profound moral document. It has to do with the spiritual evolution of the human race because it said that God did not just give power to the king. God created all of us equal and that power should be given to everyone and that God gave us rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which you and I would call self-actualization today, the right to self-actualize, that governments are instituted to support that. And that if government's not doing its job, it's the right of the people to alter it or to abolish it. That was profoundly radical in 1776, and it is profoundly radical today. That document, uh, Lincoln said, it is an eternal rebuke against forces of tyranny. Okay, 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. In so signing, they were acting very courageously, because if the British had won the war, all of them would have been hanged. Right. That's where it starts, but that's also where it gets gnarly, because 41 of the 56 signers were themselves slave owners. Now, for us to really grasp that, that's the American story. We are and have always been both and. Mm. On one hand, we are founded on the most radical principles of an enlightened society. And from the beginning, and by the way, filled with people willing to even sacrifice their lives to actualize that ideal. Yep. And we have been imbued with forces from the very beginning who for their own ideological and or financial purposes had no intention whatsoever of seeing those principles universally applied and have proven time and time again that they would go to the most atrocious lengths to make sure that they were not. Right. Now, if you look at it through time, every generation up to and including ours has lived out that struggle. Right. Over time, we have tended to self-correct the moral arc of the universe long, but it bends towards justice. We responded to slavery with abolition, the Civil War. We responded to the institutionalized suppression of women with the 19th Amendment, granting women the right to vote. We responded to the financial overreach of the Gilded Age with the establishment of labor, organized labor. We responded to segregation with the civil rights movement. The point is, it's our turn now. Right. And what we are dealing with now is not one particular institution that represents that ideological and financial resistance to genuine liberty for all. We are dealing with an economic paradigm. And that economic paradigm has been ascendant now for about 50 years. It's called by many names. You can call it neoliberalism. You can call it corporatism. You can call it trickle-down economics. It is the idea that short-term profits for huge corporate entities should be our bottom line, even at the expense of the safety, health, and well-being of the American people and other species and the planet on which we live. And that's because and the lie is kind of told, right, is if we make sure all the corporations and these big things are getting the money that they need, then it will eventually trickle down and hit the rest. That is what they said. That's think- exactly what they said. Ooh, they right said if we make stockholder value, Right. The the great thing, those people will create jobs. Right. And so all that money will trickle down. After 45 years or so, the jury is in. 
it not only did not, because I said it'll trickle down and lift all boats. Not only did it lift, not lift all boats, it has left millions of people without even a life vest. And this is because it was always a ruse to say they will create jobs. Their business model has not been job creation. Their business model has been job elimination and the exploitation of workers. Now, once this this paradigm took hold, and yes, a Republican president started it, but no Democratic president has stopped it. Once it took hold, you deregulate, you give tax cuts to the very rich, you demonize unions, and what starts to happen is what's happened over the last 50 years, which is a massive transfer of wealth into the hands of 1% of Americans. You know, Justin, in the 1970s, how old are you? How old are you? 35. I was born in 88. Okay. Okay. Well, I was born in 1952. So in the 1970s, I was in my 20s. In the 1970s, the average American worker could afford a house and could afford a car and could afford a yearly vacation and could afford to send their kids to college. Right. What we have now is the majority of Americans saying they live with constant economic stress. Now, several years ago, the Supreme Court came up with a decision that I think one day will be seen as one of the most, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in our history, which was called Citizens United. And Citizens United gave the power to corporations to give on an unlimited basis money that will influence campaigns. Right. And so at this point, they have turned our government into a system of legalized bribery, where time after time again, our legislators do more to serve the profit goals of their donors than to serve the legitimate needs of their constituents, even when their constituents have made their needs very clear. And that's an important thing to remember. The majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, want universal health care. Right. Like they have in every other advanced democracy. The majority of Republicans, as well as Democrats, want tuition-free college, like they have in every other advanced democracy. This goes back to the people aren't the problem. And this is why the only way to override this is with a revolution at the ballot box. So how do because we, the, how do you, I just one more, I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, there was just one more thing I wanted to say. They, yeah. They've created this artificial um, drama that it's all about right versus left, but that's really a ruse. The right. real dichotomy is between the powerful and the powerless. The real dichotomy is between those who have capital and easy access to more versus those who are just struggling to get by. People on the left and the right are figuring this out. People, Just like you were talking about your family, people on the left uh, and the right are realizing that if you are a worker being screwed, you're being screwed by the same people, whether you're on the left or the right. Right. Amen. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've been, I've been wondering, so like to pull this into, ah, I have like three questions all at once from everything you just said. Okay, so I'm going to start with my first one and then I'll go to my second one. So first one is, when we think about individual people who are believing in this story of the of left versus right, you versus me, you know, you're a Democrat, you're a Trumper, you're this, you're that, and people get into that story. So like, an example, you know, I have my, my book coming out that you know about how we ended racism, which is a book all about love, right? And we were posting something about it online. I mean, it was like a most loving post talking about how we're coming together as conservatives and liberals to end this thing. And like these people the, like commented all over the post and I'll excuse my language, everybody, because I'm going to say it how it is. Just fuck niggers, fuck niggers all over the thing. Right. And so I sat with my team in that moment and I asked, they, they said, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to respond? Do you want to delete? Do you want to block? And I think this social media is an example is an example of what we experience in our collective, right? We have people in our workplace, we have people wherever who have these kind of extreme ways of coming at us. And we're like, do I just distance myself from them and not listen to them? Do I, how do I respond to them in a way that calls them forward or do I not need to? So what is, what do we do with that energy? You know, even though we know there's still another problem, there's kind of two things happening at the same time. What do we do with that? 
I live with that question every day. Yeah. I am in an experience where every day I yeah. wake up to the most extraordinary insults yeah. and lies. She told AIDS patients not to take their medicine. She told AIDS patients that they got sick because they didn't pray enough. Yeah. She is a crystal lady. She is an unserious person. She um, is abusive. She's mean. She's not good to staff. Um, every day. Yeah. And I live with the question that you said, because in the last campaign, I did come out of it thinking, every time they said that, I should have gotten on Facebook and responded. And, but you know what? It's hard. Right. You know, in The Course in Miracles, says, in my defenselessness, I safety lie, my safety lies. If you respond every time, you start to appear whiny and defensive. Um, it's traumatizing to face that every day. Right. I feel actually like I wake up, I, I feel like my experience, it's online bullying is what it is. Yeah. It's online bullying. And a lot of times on the part of people who would be the first to say, oh, you have to listen to all voices, you can't online bully, etc." So I have, have noticed that AOC, I like the way sometimes she does respond. In terms of what you went through, I liken what you went through to anti-Semitism. Right. And I assume you were taught as a child what I was taught, which is, by the way, you should know this, some people hate us. Right. Yeah. But I think that's all the more reason, you know, one of the things I feel on a spiritual journey, we have to honor our incarnation. Even though the spirit is neither black, white, brown, male, female, anything about our physicality, I think we have to honor our physicality. Right. As a Jewish woman living in America, as a black man living in America, you can't, and clearly you've come to this realization, you can't in good conscience ignore a moral responsibility, particularly what has been done to our ancestors. You know, you're biracial. To forces of bigotry and racism, you're black. Black, yeah. Yeah. And just as Hitler, there there were people who had like one eighth Jewish blood and had not been practicing Jews for generations. His mind, you're a Jew, you go to the country. Yeah. Caucasian camp. Yeah. I think among blacks and Jews in America today, I sense this you did it to my grandparents and you're not gonna do it to my kids. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think you know, it's been such an important lesson for me as I go through this, thinking to how my family, you know, grew up with this. Like my mom, so when my mom married my dad, my family actually disowned my mom. Uh, they kicked her out of the house at 21 years old and disowned her and said, we're never speaking to you again. And then what happened after this was actually what I was raised upon. So my family, I think when they disowned my mom, thought that it was going to scare her away from doing it. And it was crazy because she, my mom grew up in an Italian family. And back then they weren't even considered white, <laughs> right? Like they weren't even considered to be, to be white and they wouldn't have called themselves racist, but their daughter, <laughs> a black person was not going to be allowed. And so when my mom, I mean, I can't even imagine it, 21 years old, you know, 22 going, okay, I'm packing my bags, I'm out. When she did that and got married with no one there, it woke part of my family up. And my grandfather and half of our family went to the rest of the Italian family and said, I don't know how we're going to do this, but we're going we're gonna to figure this out and we're going to welcome Barbara back into the family. Wow. And, and so our wow. family... Yeah, I mean, our family coming together is what 
has helped me know, like it, this story was something that I knew as a child. And it was something that helped me know that what we're talking about here is possible. I grew up in the most loving, caring, compassionate, multiracial, magical family that could possibly have existed that you would never have known was that before. But I think it was because we knew the history of our family and we're committed to showing up with love with each other, you know, and, and it's not to say, I'll say one more thing. It's not to say that our family did everything right all the time. We had people accidentally say racist stuff, you know, like uh, things come out, but we knew we were on the same mission going in the same direction. And I think that's what we really need mm -hmm. this country towards that to understand that we're all actually headed in the same way. And it seems like the media is not letting us even know that we're all so much more alike and in agreement than we are different. And I think sometimes it goes back to what you were saying before. If you actually talk to people, if you actually talk to people and get to know people, more often than not, there's a, there's a basic decency. And yeah. even when it comes to race, my experience on the campaign, both last time and this time, I understand that there are racist systems, but in terms of racist individuals, I think the bigger problem is not racist individuals. It's lack of education, right? lack of information, misinformation. Yeah. Because I would find what on, on the campaign that when you are talking to an all-white audience in a state like New Hampshire or Iowa, and you give a, in my experience, I would give like a, 10-minute little 101A, 7th grade level explanation of, you know, race in America starting in 1619, by the time I'm done, people see not only the situation very differently, but also the responsibility of the U.S. Very differently. Very differently. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Thank you. And so I think, you know, one person asked, <laughs> is there a solution of how to handle the, the cyberbullying. What do you do? Like, do you ignore it? Do you go on a case-by-case -case basis? Do you send love? Do you block? I'm Because I'm sure you, like you said, Marianne, you've had to learn so much with this. So how do you recommend us? You know, people tell me, Marianne, you're a presidential candidate. You, you should never respond. Sometimes I do. Last night I was reading somebody say, well, after what she did to AIDS patients, I'll never forgive or forget. What did I do to AIDS patients other than raise millions of dollars? I mean, I... I Right, right. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. So sometimes I do whether or not I should. Um, I know last time when I ran, I was on Anderson Cooper and he ambushed me. It was live and he ambushed me. And I had this sense in my heart that lines from the course in my defense system, my safety lies. But I actually came to believe that I should have said more. I should have said more. Because if someone else said to me later, Marianne, if you couldn't take on Anderson Cooper, why should we think you have what it takes to take on Vladimir Putin? Mm. There is a sweet spot inside us where I think it has less to do with what you say and more to do with who, you're, who you are when you say it. And then in some cases, we're moved to respond. In some cases, we're moved not to respond but even when we do, that we do it from a place that is simply setting the record straight. Listen, I think all of this, the, the main point in all of this is to create a force field. Yeah. To create so much love on the Internet, so much love in policies. In all the ways that you said, answer the lies with a greater truth. Yeah. Donald Trump tells some big lies. We need to tell some big truths, such as. There's one in four Americans living with medical debt. This is unacceptable. We have the highest, the highest poverty rate in any advanced uh, democracy. That is unacceptable. There are hungry children in America. That is unacceptable. Yeah. <clears throat> there are people in their 20s lo loaded down by tens of thousands of dollars of college loan debt, which would be crippling, particularly at that age, yeah. who took out those loans for no other reason than that they were told that's the way to close the wage gap and self-actualize. And now they're enchained by these things. Tell that truth. I think we need to worry less about responding to the lies and more about putting out the truth. But we need to put it out 
as a political alternative to a politics of falsehood, or else nothing's going to fundamentally change. So I want to ask the audience who's here a question, um, and I, I, I really would love for you all to type in what comes up for you in the chat box, because this is a really important point, right? Because oftentimes we're constantly thinking of the problem being out there and what's the problem out there that we need to solve. But I'm very curious to know, for those of you here, what keeps you or has kept you from getting involved in politics? What are the things you tell yourself? to avoid getting involved. And when I asked this online on social media, the, the top four responses I got were, the issue is too big for me to solve by myself. Politics are corrupt, there's no point. I don't have enough time. And my own life is hard enough as it is. These were the four top responses that I got. And I'm, I'm as I'm seeing the rest of you type into the chat right now, I want to have you say, what has kept you from getting involved? So. My mom is here right now, Marianne, which is great. She says knowledge and truth. So I guess, Marianne, you know, as people are typing this in, how do we overcome? I mean, because these are big things to overcome. How do we step into the political space when, we're, when people have these beliefs, right? Like it's too big, it's corrupt, there's not enough time, my own life is hard enough. Because I think those things are all going to stay true, but we also need to get involved in the political space. So how do we balance this out? What do you say to this? I think Americans, including all the people who would say that, need to think about what it is to be a woman in Afghanistan. Or what it means to be someone with any difference of opinion from the government in Saudi Arabia. There's a man who's going to be executed in Saudi Arabia because the government didn't like what he tweeted to his eight followers. I remember. That's crazy. I want people to think about the fact that 46% of the urban water supply is filled in the United States is filled with PFAS, these, these chemicals, these forever chemicals that do not break down. I want you to think about the fact that there are carcinogens in our food. I want you to think about the fact that there are children who get asthma and worse every day because of the air that they're breathing. I want you to think about what's happening to too many unarmed black men in America. I want you to think about the fact that one of four Americans live with medical debt. Yeah. Go there. And then tell me it's, I don't have time. Right. We, we have to not indulge this in ourselves. We have to not indulge this in our, in each other. Yeah. We have to toughen up. This is serious now. And when you have neo-authoritarian impulses that would ban, that ban books, that don't want American children to learn about our racial history, that limit the rights of women, this has simply gone too far yeah. for us to be willing to indulge yeah that kind of thinking now sometimes justin people tell me that it's kind of traumatizing yeah all this is kind of traumatizing to that i say don't you think the people who walked across the bridge at selma were traumatized right our right. ancestors faced dogs and hoses we we absolutely must mature yeah to the meaning of this moment. Yeah. I, I am feeling, you know, love. And you coming to this point of love, and even when you're talking about responding to like cyber bullies or, you know, anybody really in the world, it's about who we're being when we respond. Can we connect into the force of love? And 
not just fight against what this person is saying, but actually stand for what we love in our response to people. I think it's the same question. And it reminds me of my interview with you a couple of years ago, like when we talk about, well, what would love do if love saw these, you know, starving children? It's very re- practical. It's easy. What it's would love- very practical. You give people health care. Yeah. That's what love does. When people don't have health care and you're the richest country in the world, you give them health care. When yeah. people are loaded down and they don't know how to send their kids to college and these kids just want to self-actualize, what would love do? Tuition-free college and tech school like they have in every other, um, uh, uh, other advanced democracy. What would love do? Cancel those college loan debts. What would love do? Give people a raise it to a living wage. You have yeah. one third of America's workforce living on less than $15 an hour. Half of those people cannot find a place to live. Yeah. There are people working full time living in their cars. Yeah. What would love do is a very practical question. If you and I uh, see one person, if you and I were in a restaurant, let's say we're having dinner and at a table next to us, somebody falls over. They could be having a heart attack. They could have choked. What would love do? Immediately call 911. Immediately give, you know, uh, give whatever that person needs to that person. Right. It's, it's real practical. What does love do? You don't ignore human suffering. And there is no uh, spiritual or religious tradition that gives any of us a pass on addressing the suffering of other human beings. Yeah. Every time they talk about data, you talk about despair. They don't want, they, they, they have come up with this transactional, managerial, political conversation, which, as you mentioned before, is corrupt. Yeah. It's corrupt because it has no ethical or moral core. But what a lot of people have done over the last few decades is it's so toxic, I don't want anything to do with it. But then if we just walk away from it, what has happened is it's just become more toxic because it's become more dominated by those forces. Now a lot of people say, I, I know it's time, we all have to get back in, but I don't know what portal to enter. And I hope that people feel that my campaign is a portal to enter because we have to have a revolution of love at the ballot box. Yes. Or else, if, if our revolution of love is only peripheral to the actual pow- power centers, then yes, those of us who have the luxury of things like what we're doing right now is fine, but that won't do anything for the hungry child. No, and you know what, David in the in the chat box just said this. He said, "Imagine you know all of us who feel too busy to get involved now. If things don't get better soon, they'll get worse, and we, you know not having time is going to be the least of our issues." <laughs> That's no. why it's going to be the least of your issues. Yeah, not Thank you for saying that, David. So, you know, this is really important. I think, you know, everybody, remember in the question section here, I'd love to be able to ask a couple of your questions. Um, in the question section here, you can type in your questions and or upvote any other questions that any of you have for Marianne, and I'll do my best to bring in the ones that feel relevant. <laughs> and um, Kitty? You know, I'd like to say something to that question from that person named Kitty. Oh, let's see. I didn't see it. Ah. Um, So, Kitty, this is the deal. If you just vote for a status quo candidate, then your vote doesn't matter as much as it should. Now, the Democrats, definitely better. But still, they're within the the corporatist Democrats are still within the context of (coughs) fundamentally remaining the same, just a better version of an unjust system. In voting for someone like myself, you are voting for the possibility that change could occur. Yes. You are. Yes. I believe this wholeheartedly. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people say this like, oh, well, I'm not going to waste my vote because this is never going to happen. I'm not going to. It's a primary. (laughs) Eighth grade civics. Eighth grade civics. You know, can you say about a Trump voter that their their vote didn't count? Mm -hmm. Damn right it counted. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, I think this is so important. So Marianne, I think, you know, as we start to come to a close here, I would love to give some time for you to paint a picture for us of the world that could exist oh, with beautiful. you as president of the United Thank States you. of America. Thank you. Thank you. Things have gone awry <clears throat> and economic principles, soulless economic principles, 
have replaced democracy and humanitarian values as our governing principle. This is very dangerous, and we're not going to be able to fix it in one year. I think we're going to need a generation. It's going to be, it's going to take a generation to turn this ship around. But we are headed for the iceberg here. Right. And we must turn it around. If I'm president, I will not have a magic wand. No president does or should. It's not like if I'm president, the minute I get there next week, you're going to have universal health care and you're going to have all of that stuff. I will not be able to, in my term, and I only think I should be there for one term, actually. And I want to say that, I want you to know why. Yeah. What I want to do as president, you wouldn't even think of doing if you were even spending one second wondering if you could get reelected. That's number one. And number two, someone my age should not be elected president four years from now. So I want to go in there for four years. I always say chiropractic adjustment for this country. Yeah. We need the heart back in our government. We need some spine back in our people. I would not be able to turn the ship around entirely in four years. If you give me that power, I think I can get us around the curve. Yeah. I can get us around the curve and then hand it over to a younger generation who will be ready. And I think part of what my presidency will do is it will be a kind of space of incubation for a lot of younger people, such as yourself, Justin, to prepare for ownership of the level of power when that baton is passed. Yeah. And um, from universal healthcare to tuition free college and tech school to complete cancellation of the college loans debt to declaring a climate emergency to ramping down fossil fuel extraction rather than ramping it up as it is right now, to declaring a Department of Peace, Department of Children of Youth, and ending the drug war. Yes. It is time to end the drug war. I can't necessarily achieve all of those things in full in four years, but I can get them started. Yeah. And I can get them started and grounded and foundational enough that I think the next generation could take it from there and I will have helped prepare the ground for their full actualization. Mm. John F. Kennedy said, if we do not end war, war will end us. We need to imagine a world without war in a hundred years and then reverse engineer from there. And for people who say that that's naive to think that we can bring love as Gandhi did, as Dr. King did, to bear on political on political issues in a way that truly transforms things. They say, I'm naive. I'll tell you what's naive. What's naive is thinking we're either going, even going to survive as a species for another hundred years if we don't at least try. Yeah. So we need a revolution at the ballot box. And if we decide to wage it, given the fact that the agenda that I'm talking about here is the agenda agreed with by the majority of people? We can pull off a political miracle. Our ancestors have pulled off a few of them, and it's our turn now. One of the things that I was like imagining as you were talking, you said we're heading for the iceberg and mm-hmm. it's just, just enough to make sure. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Because the corporatists, the corporatists in the Republican Party are going straight for the iceberg. The corporatists, meaning those who, you know, always put the corporate bottom line first, they're moving there more slowly and we've hit it at a different angle. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we got to turn this thing around and we have to do it now. Around. Marianne, what I would love to do just as we close, I would love if you'd be okay with it to guide people through a short guided practice to have them envision this world that we're standing in and look back to see what an action would be today. And so, Marianne, I'll just take a few minutes just to guide people through a short practice and maybe you as well, if that's okay, before we sign off. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. 
everybody, if you would take a moment here and just put your hands over your heart, close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. And we place the hands over the heart, not just as a symbol of prayer and honoring, but actually to release some oxytocin into the bloodstream, which allows us to envision a little bit more easily. And then take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And now inhale with me for one, two, three. Hold for one, two, three. Exhale one, two. Again, inhale one, two, three. Hold for one, two, three. Exhale one, two, three. We're just grounding our nervous systems. One more time, inhale one, two, three. Hold for one, two, three. Exhale one, two, and three. And now just breathe normally and keep your eyes closed if you're comfortable doing that. Also do this with them open, but try keeping them closed if you can. And I want you to imagine a future version of this planet, of our world, where there is universal health care for all people, where we are thriving as a society where we have come together in the sake of peace and where the United States has actually become the beacon and example of peace on the planet that inspires every other country to change their ways because they see just how incredible it's been for our economy and for our people to create a place of peace and well-being. Take yourself to that future. I want you to imagine a future where everyone has the right to education, where our schools are, as Marianne says, a palace of learning and well-being, where college debt is but a thing of the past and everyone gets the opportunity to explore their gifts and talents and cultivate them to be of service to the greater good where we each experience purpose and well-being and joy and love. And coming together, holding hands, not despite or because we don't have differences, but with those differences, knowing that we've always been both and, and that's actually what can make us stronger. Take a moment and just imagine this now and notice what comes to you. Notice if you're indoor or if you're outdoor as you imagine this vision. Notice if there's anybody there with you or if you're alone. And notice what's happening in this vision that indicates that something's changed. Where have you landed? What's going on around you? What colors do you see? And now as you keep this vision in mind, I'm gonna ask you a question. And I want you to answer this question using one word. Here's your question. As you imagine this future world and you living the life of your dreams in this world, what energy do you need to bring to the world now, today? that would make that vision come true. Standing in that future, looking back at today, what energy do you need to bring to the world? See if you can come up with one word. And then finally, what is one action step that you could take today that would have made that future a possibility? One step. And then we'll close out this vision. Imagine, imagining Marianne at the helms, blessing her on this journey as she stands as a force of love, as Marianne guides us and turns this ship around the iceberg so we can all experience the freedom and joy and love and possibility that we all deserve. So go ahead and take a deep breath in. 
and a deep breath out. And I open your eyes and I want you to type into the chat box what your energy is and what your action is, because this is how we together are going to bring love forward, not just as a political force, but as a moral force, as a force for changing this planet. Marianne, I want to thank you so much for being here with me. I'm writing into your chat box right now. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Ready to chat. But well, you can tell us your word, Marianne. What is it? Yeah, I just, yes. The word I got was yes. I need the energy of yes. I think for all the reasons that you were talking about. My father used to say, don't let the bastards get you down. You know, people like you were talking about who wrote on your whatever. So I like there's a lot of yes, 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 yes. Okay, thank you. And so be it, right? Thank you, Justin. Thank you for holding this important conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne. We're going to spread this thing out as far and wide all over social media and every place that it can possibly be. And I just want to thank you. And thank I, you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you are exa- if, when you are the president of the United States, this world is going to be a whole damn different place. And I'm so excited for you standing in that possibility and, and taking on all that has to be taken on to stand in that place. So we thank, thank you. you and honor you. Thank you so much, Marianne. We'll have a great four years. We'll do some great things together. Thank you very, very much. God bless you, honey. And to all of your listeners, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll see you soon, Marianne. Bye, darling. Bye, dear. Everybody, I'm so grateful and so honored that you've joined us on this session of The Kingdom. Again, if you haven't done so already, make sure you go see Marianne's presidentialcampaign.com. And, you know, This is pretty wild, y'all. We've had some time here to do a practice. We've had some time to ask questions. And now we end with this one piece, which we end every single kingdom with. Everybody take one second and place your hands over your heart. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And if you could think of one golden nugget, one key takeaway from this session today, what would your key takeaway be? If you could take one thing away with you, what would it be? And then when you're ready, just take a breath in with that and a breath out and type your golden nuggets into the chat box and we'll have a cascade of golden nuggets for everybody here. I love you all so much. I honor you and I thank Marianne for being here and uh, we rise together. This is Justin Michael Williams signing out and I'll see you next time, everybody. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to The Kingdom Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to rate it or subscribe. But most importantly, to send this episode to a friend or to someone you love. The only way we're going to see change in this world is by each of us spreading messages of hope into the corners of the world where only you can reach. So send this today to someone who needs it. I'm sure they'll thank you for it. This is Justin Michael Williams, signing out. I love you, and I'll meet you right here in this special place in our next episode, where we rise together.